Do you love Phoenix, Adele, or Arcade Fire? These bands all share one thing in common. They are not from America. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Today, we're talking about marketing foreign bands in the U.S. How does it work, and how is it different from marketing a U.S. band? How do people decide what bands can do well in America, and what bands can't? It's all coming up on The Future of What. listening to the future of what? We're talking to Anna Bond, label manager of Rough Trade Records in the U.S. Anna, welcome back to the future of what? Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk to you today because we are interested in marketing. We're trying to explain how marketing works. And you have a had a pretty interesting career in that you have worked a lot in the last few years for labels that are actually based elsewhere. Both these labels are based in the UK that you've worked for. And as a result, you've done a lot, you have a lot of experience with bringing bands in from other territories to market them and try to make them going concerns in the US. So we wanted to ask you about how in the heck do you do it? Is it different at all from a US band or is it just like, how do you do it, Anna? Tell us. (laughs) Good question. If you find (laughs) out, let me know. It's it is a lot different from a U.S. artist because the U.K. market specifically and any like European market, which is most of the artists I've worked with who come in from overseas have been from the U.K. and Europe, tend to be pretty regionalized. The U.K. music market specifically has a lot more opportunities for smaller artists to kind of reach outside of a niche audience you know, you'll see a band like Mogwai will have like a top 10 record every time they put out a record in the UK. So it's almost like the average music consumer in the UK just has a broader palette. And a lot of that is because of BBC radio, because, you know, they, they're restricted to the radio stations of the BBC, which is only six channels. And, you know, BBC Six is kind of the more experimental, interesting one. And there, you know, are certain, you know, radio DJs who play, you know, the more mainstream stuff, the less mainstream stuff. There's different shows on different stations for different genres. But because the BBC is kind of like the filter for so much of what's played on the radio, it's not easy, but it's easier to get just a great song by an unknown artist on the radio in the UK, which is a hugely impactful way to launch a career. We have an artist from Ireland called Soak, and she is a very young woman who is a singer-songwriter. She plays with a band as well, and she had multiple songs that got tons of rotation on BBC One just because they were great. And, you know, that's something with anyone who has any knowledge of the U.S. radio market in terms of mainstream radio and even non-commercial radio, like the, the bigger, like the WFUVs and the KCRWs of the world, they can be a little more conservative. So there is, there, it just feels like the UK market is a lot different because there is a kind of a higher level of potential for a less mainstream artist just on the baseline. And so when you bring an artist like that to the US, that doesn't translate. There's very little UK press promotion profile that comes along with an artist from the UK. So you'll have bands. I mean, there are probably tons of bands in the UK now that I've never heard of and you've never heard of, but who are massive there. Right. But that we don't even know about because like, you know, they tried once to get them a hit and it didn't work. So like, we'll stay in our own country. Why would we come to the US? And you know, it's, it's, our country's really big. It's, expensive to tour here. And that is a a really crucial part of it. But you're basically starting from square one when it comes to a band that already has a level of success in the UK or any European country. 
bringing them over to the U.S., you'd have to start as if they're a completely new artist. And because you don't have them on the ground as much as you would if they were, you know, a U.S. artist who you could count on to tour a couple times of the year, you have to really be strategic about the way you help them plan their tours and make sure they get, you know, enough time for promo and, you know, try to plan it so it's the right season. So, like, the the friendly radio people won't be, like, you know, on vacation. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, there are a lot of considerations, you know, if you only have a couple of days to like maybe get that NPR live session and it turns out it's Newport Folk Fest or like whatever, whatever festival is happening, that can be a huge piece of your campaign that you don't get to try, try for again for six more months until your artist comes back over. And I think, I I mean, everything you've said is, is exactly what I was hoping you would, you would talk about in particular the radio piece, because you know, radio in the U.S. is such a closed shop. I think probably the most famous and telling example of that is how Adele is actually on an independent label in the U.K., Mm -hmm. which is where she broke. And she was able to break and be a huge success in the U.K. Uh on an independent label. But when the independent label brought her to the U.S. market, they actually had to do a deal with a major in order to get her the radio play that she was going to need in order to break in the U- U.S. market, yeah. which, thank God, actually worked out. Yeah. But, like, that's that's not something that's necessarily an option for all indie labels in the U.K. to bring, you know, to make a deal with Universal or whoever it was. Yeah, and I mean, you know, radio is really only an option for a handful of independent artists anyways, because you do have to have a song that is going to have a lot of mainstream appeal and, you know, a, a fun activity is to try to explain the U.S. radio market to a British person like who's in the music industry. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. I've had the conversation <laughs> like, so wait, what's specialty now? Yeah. So wait, what's, what's non-commercial? And it's just the fact that there are different stations that play different genres of music is just like kind of horrifying. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and obviously most independent artists are going to be going for, you know, non-commercial college and and the kind of non-commercial AAA stations and the NPR affiliates because commercial radio is not only tremendously expensive to get into, even if you do have like the personnel to manage that kind of campaign, you really have to have the song. You can't just throw money at anything. Like it really has to be a very specific type of song. And, you know, the main role of your radio person is to identify whether your song is a good bet you know? Right. Yeah. You do. I mean, because you have to have the cash to, to even put behind that. And, and that's, I mean, it's not something these days that people can take lightly, like, oh, let's just try with this song. No, 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 not how that works. So, and yet, and yet with all that said, obviously labels like Rough Trade do bring over acts from other territories. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have any See, I've been so fascinated lately by, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, every territory is really, really different. And so like when when I was managing the gossip, I knew that they were going to be huge in the UK or at least they had a shot to be huge in the UK because they had a specific combination of traits that are very beloved in the UK. Yeah. But then other territories like different things. And, you know, Europe is such a patchwork of of territories you know people think just like oh europe but no it's not like that at all it's like every single country is a different a totally different proposition i mean there's a reason they love david hasselhoff and the like you know whatever the the classic hilarious joke right of the music business like in germany they love david hasselhoff and nobody else likes him at all but there's a reason for that because the german music market is looking for something specific so when you turn around and take an artist out of europe and bring them to the U.S., it's 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 the same in reverse, right? It's like we, you know, we're pretty clear about what we like as well. I mean, the vast majority of the bands that have been successful from foreign territories are English-speaking bands. Like, we do not have a yeah. thing for guys with wacky foreign accents. Like, it's very rare. Right. But anyway, my point was there's there's only certain territories that it seems like you can really import a band successfully to the U.S. from. Well, and certain, and it's even limited within those territories because like if you have a British band who's like a British rock band and they're very British, like a pub rock band. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they 
have like very anthemic, like yelly songs and like their iconography is very like British lad. Like, oh yes. Even the Libertines were not that popular in the US. Those kind of bands are incredibly difficult to get people into over here. Right, because we don't recognize that. Because they're so like identified. Yeah, they're so identified with their own country. And unless it's something that's like gone so far into the other direction that it's like like super foreign. Right. Unless it's so British that it's like crazy. Right. It's just, it just feels like, you know, people just aren't interested. That's an excellent point. I always think of that band, The Wonder Stuff. Do you remember that band? That, <laughs> yes. that band, when I lived in England, that was literally the hugest band in England. Yeah. Like they were selling out arenas in England. And it's like that band would like never could possibly have survived in the U.S. because nobody gets that like lad rock. There are tons of bands like that, too. There are tons of like lad bands in the U.K. who are like on the covers of magazines, like on the covers of Enemy, and you will never hear about them in America. Yep, it's totally true. And then the the previous label you worked for had a bunch of Scottish acts, which I was always really fascinated Mm -hmm. by. But I feel like Scottish acts have done better in the U.S. than I know, right? I feel like that's because they've got like that sort of underdog thing that we kind of love yeah. in the U.S. <laughs> there is like an underdog charm. I think that, you know, the Scottish artists that I've worked with, there's there's like, a. I think that people associate British music a lot of the times with a sense of detachment. Mm-hmm. And I think that with Scottish artists, that's missing. It's just like Scottish artists are like fully depressed. Like they're fully connected to their depression <laughs> right. or their like anger or, you know, whatever kind of like catharsis you're looking for. There's a Scottish band who will provide it for you. Right. But yeah, I do think that there is something about, about kind of the way that, that the Scottish artists who come over to the U.S. end up just like feeling more, not like authentic, but just feeling more like emotionally resonant somehow. So let's say you have a band Mm -hmm. uh, and you have not signed them because you are in the U.S., but they were signed in the U.K. and it is your job to bring them to America and market them. Yes. How do you set about doing that? Well, once we have, you know, once we have the record and we have a release date and we have whatever our first single is going to be, we've got all that stuff kind of outlined. We know when we're getting our video. We figure out when we can bring them over. I mean, it, it depends on the artist and it kind of depends on their availability. But assuming they're like a young, raring to go, you know, rock act who can just tour and don't need to like stay in fancy hotels and we can just like tour them for like not a zillion dollars. Yes. <laughs> I would want them to come over as much as possible. But particularly like I like to bring a band over to do, you know, kind of an intro tour. Maybe we do like a cool press show after we've like gotten some of the music out there. You know, if, if we get a little bit of kind of buzz or interested press about them, you know, bring them over, do a New York show, maybe do a New York and an LA, but definitely New York show, maybe a couple of East coast dates, like get some radio stuff. Like if we can get like WFUV on board, like, any of those kind of like early taste-making radio stations, if there's any sessions we can get done and, you know, bring them over like before the record's out, before their big tour, just to get, you know, that the kind of core group of press, radio, you know, even sync licensing, like people in the industry, retail people, like get our distributor on board with them early so that they're excited. Like people get, you know, people from Spotify and Apple get excited to see a new band if they're great, you know? Right. So make sure we do that like as soon as possible. And then the the key thing I find when you are dealing with a worldwide band is just making sure that the timing of the U S tour isn't like the third thing that people think of. Like, I feel like it's always kind of making sure that the U S is top of mind. It's like, I get that you want to, you want to play your home territories around your release date, but just come to the U S within a month. (laughs) Just like do us that solid. Right. So then we can, we still have the momentum going and everyone benefits. And yeah, I mean, it's really all about, you know, getting a well-routed tour and making sure we like get all of the promo that we can like get sorted, like all the radio stations, even if it's just like going and saying hello, like going and saying hello to the record store, like all that stuff is still totally meaningful 
and just, you know, keeping the band really engaged in, in what they're doing and not letting them burn out on the long U.S. drives. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just interviewed a U.K. band called Ultimate Painting the other day, and they said oh something. Oh, my God, Jack Cooper, my buddy. Yeah, right? Adorable. Oh, my God. Those oh guys are so what cute. Yeah, yeah I adorable. love them. But they said the funniest thing, which I've never heard a band, a UK band say before, which was that they love touring in the US because you can sleep on people's floors. Like you can, like people will take you home with them and you can stay yeah. with people because they're like, that yeah. never happens in the UK because nobody has any room. Yeah. Like no, everybody lives in these tiny flats, so they can't like, you can't come over and crash. Like, so they're like, you know, when you're traveling through the US South, there's all these people who have like giant houses and they're like, come on home. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in Louisiana, you can stay in our extra bedroom or whatever. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that. That makes me feel good about the U.S. for a change. I'm like, oh, we're so hospitable. How nice. <laughs> I never thought about that, but it it's totally true. true. I always, <laughs> I think about that a lot because, you know, we have bands who, who come over and tour. And I just remember, like, you know, being out on the road with bands and like, well, it'll be fine. We'll find a place to stay tonight. We'll, like, crash in this dorm. We got right. it. Like, yeah. But it's not like that in the. But you totally man. can't do that. You can't do that oh, like in Europe because you're in another country. Forget it. Like. Yeah, you cannot do that. It doesn't work. I mean, some territories yeah. it depends. You know, it's like if you've been in a territory several times and you have like friends, yeah. it's different. But if you just like show up in Belgium, it's like you better have a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> so, are there specific acts? I mean, I I think this is probably true for everybody, but you know, there's probably bands that you are like, you know this is not going to fly in the U.S., right? Where you're like, mm, yeah, probably not. <laughs> well, sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's like, like we've worked with some artists that I know are just always going to be very niche in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times it's because like the subject matter is extremely U.K. topical. Mm-hmm. Like we work with the complete amazing genius, Dean Blunt. Mm-hmm. And he has, a lot of other projects, but he's, you know, his, in as much as you can kind of excavate the topics of his songs, like he talks a lot about London and, you know, about the politics in London, about like racial politics in London and in England specifically, he uses a lot of like really local references. So, and that's only in some of his records. So sometimes it's like, I'm I'm sure it's intentional, like kind of almost like intentionally alienating, intentionally regionalizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is great and totally valid, but it's also a thing where you're like, okay, well, this is you know, this has the British expatriate audience is this big, right? <laughs> and right. the like experimental kind of like electronic R and B crossover audience is this big. So finding <laughs> the Venn diagram, right, sliver in the middle of them, but you know, you will be surprised by things once in a while. I mean, like the band Palma Violets that I work with is very much like a kind of pubby lad band, but they had a big single here just because it was such a great rock song. Mm-hmm. And there can be an audience for that when a band like that writes an amazing rock song. Right. So it just kind of depends on, you know, case by case. We're working with a super British band right now called Sleaford Mods who have an amazing cult following in the U.S. They've only ever played one show here. And they almost, they're like the ones that are like so British that it goes back around. <laughs> right. Like it goes back <laughs> around to like the other being side. universal yeah. because it's like so specific. Yeah, totally. So that's really exciting because I know so many people who are just obsessed with that band, but it is so, like their accents are so British and they talk about such British stuff and their, you know, their diction is like such British slang and it's, but it's like amazing. Right. Well, that's, you have to add to your Venn diagram, the, the population of Anglophiles, like hardcore American Anglophiles, because you, if you get those people in there too, you've got a few more, a couple hundred more. That is a few more people. I always like going to like the first or second show, an artist from another country is playing in New York Uh and just seeing like the, like all of the expatriates of that country. (laughs) Like I remember going to like the first Jens Lechman show Uh in New York city and it was just like, you know, 12 rock critics and just Swedes as far as the <laughs> as eye, far can, as the see. eye can see. <laughs> That's hilarious. 
Oh my gosh. Well, Anna Bond, thank you so much for taking your valuable time and hanging out with us again. Anna Bond is the label manager for Rough Trade in the U.S. Anna, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? Yay, thanks for talking. It was fun. Don't Make Waves by The Gossip. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Nick O'Byrne is a manager with Lookout Kid in Australia. Nick, welcome to the future of what? Thank you, Portia. It's lovely to be here. So today's episode, we're talking about bringing foreign artists to the U.S. successfully And I wanted to talk to you because you guys actually have an artist that you have just brought to the U.S. quite successfully, Courtney Barnett. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. It's been (laughs) quite a lot of fun. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. I mean, her album is fantastic. So can you start off by giving us a little bit of an overview of, you know, you're working with bands, you live in Australia. Obviously, Australia is a, a marketplace with its own peculiarities, as everyone is. But when you when you get an artist on your roster, what makes you think, wow, this artist would really do well in the U.S.? You know, it's it's almost you almost don't have that thought. It's more like Australia is a relatively small market, and it's virtually impossible, even if you're a household name in this country, to make a living just touring around Australia. There's only so many markets. There's only so many people buying music. So if you really want to make a go at at a career in music and you, you want to do it for a living, then you have no choice but to go overseas. And with Courtney, the USA just seemed like the logical first step. I'd had, prior to life and management, I'd had opportunity to go over to the US enough times that I had some relationships there and a little bit of the idea about the market. And in hindsight, I realized I had absolutely no idea how it worked over there, <laughs> but enough to be confident enough to, to take Courtney over there. Exactly. So yes, I, you do need some relationships. It's just funny because my husband who used to run Kill Rock Stars before me always said that having a band that was big in Australia was have, like having a band that was big in Indiana. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like as, as, you know, if everybody in Indiana really loves your band, like that's the same number of people. <laughs> as, <laughs> as yeah. yeah. 
That is a very, very good analogy. It's just like in another state for you guys. Right. But it's such a it's such a different market, you know. I mean, every territory is is so different. And I think obviously Courtney lends herself to the US. I mean, I can really hear I, you know, the first time I heard her, I thought, first of all, I didn't think she was Australian. <laughs> and second of all, I thought she made perfect sense because she's kind of got like this folk, like a little kind of gritty, like little blues, like just a whole bunch of stuff that makes a ton of sense in the US. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. So it's like, you know, you're trying to actually market an artist on a larger scale in general, just so she can make a living, <laughs> which that's right. completely and appreciate. You have to leave. And when you're, when you're from Australia, that means a minimum 14 hour flight. Wow. Visas and whatnot. So yeah, but I mean, a lot of Australian artists do it. It's now becoming a thing that where, you know, the music community over here feel it's not as scary an idea as what it might have been once in the past. Right. Because it's, I mean, that is just a ridiculously long flight. And it used to be that the the flights were just incredibly, you know, prohibitively expensive, especially if you were a small band. Yeah, I mean, they still are, if you think about it. You know, especially if, if you're a three or four piece band and you have to spend $12,000 Australian, which is, I don't know, maybe 10 grand US, before you even land on, you know, at LAX, let alone maybe the same amount on getting a visa, that's a massive investment. And a huge risk to take before you've played to a single person on U.S. soil. Right. And if you are like a normal starting band in the U.S., that means you're going to be playing for a door deal at the shows that you play. So you might make 40 bucks. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so you're not... <laughs> You're not coming over here to, you know, you know, huge, massive guarantees like, oh, we'll recoup that, those flights in no time. Absolutely. And so a lot of people in America are incredulous that we have this grant system in Australia where, where you, occasionally you can, if you're lucky and you're organized, you can access little pots of government money to help you do trips like that. But it would just be impossible. You wouldn't ever see an Australian band touring the U.S. without that help in the early parts of the career. Right. That and tour support where possible. And doing it on a shoestring, uh, really, really important in the early stages of heading over there. So with Courtney, did you send the music over to some labels first? Like, did you try to get some people interested so that you had some some good reasons to bring her over? Yeah. Throughout Courtney's career, we've sort of been lucky enough to come up with a plan. And then not, not only that plan nearly always comes to fruition and works, it normally does better than we expected. And that doesn't, you know, we encourage other bands, that doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't. Yeah. So very early on, it wasn't even labels we were speaking to. We, we had, we developed a relationship with a label in the UK who were helping us out in the USA as well, a label called Marathon Artists, who, who really had just started up. And we, we got an agent early on and we spoke to a few different publicists. And both the agent and the publicist, I guess it's sort of cheeky, but they took the liberty of sending Courtney's a song, an early song of hers called Avant Gardner to, to some press. You know, I think it was Brooklyn Vegan and Pitchfork. And those guys and those outlets loved it. And it just so happened that we were waiting to release Courtney's next EP and we were going to do it sort of independently through TuneCore or something like that. And simultaneously, we were planning on going over to CMJ, which, you know, is pretty much defunct now, from what I can tell. Mm, um, yeah, I think so. And and all that happened in the space of about two months leading up to our first ever trip to the USA. So timing-wise, it couldn't have been better. And so by the time she actually land, landed and played her first shows, there was this real kind of curiosity about who she was. And we already, you know, we weren't even talking to labels at that point, but the labels knew who... Courtney was. So, you, you know, we were really lucky. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in my experience, you know, sometimes that happens. And when it happens, you know, you're onto something good, you know, when things just fall into yeah. place and everybody, you know, goes, wow, I love that. And these doors just open that normally stay closed and yeah. <laughs> are stuck behind forever. Yeah. So yeah, that, that can be really great. But I was just thinking while you were talking that, you know, in general, it seems a very daunting thing to me, you know, because... I run a label, which means I'm, I get demos all the time. And I do get demos from people in foreign territories all the time, you know, Italian bands saying, sign me or, yeah. you know, whatever. And I'm always like, oh, you know, because the idea of trying to break a band from a foreign territory in the U.S. is really, it, it seems very daunting because of the costs of bringing the band over to tour. Yeah. 
But while you were talking, I was just thinking that there also is sort of something that you can't buy, which is like a mystique. Like a lot of times there's kind of a mystique about an artist from another territory. Totally. Like if the music is just great and people love it, and then there's that added thing of like, by the way, she's Australian. Everyone's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it, I think it yeah. adds a little spice to the whole thing. Yeah, I think it's it's probably worked in our in our favor. Um, I mean, I know of Australian artists that quite deliberately avoid, you know, in those first few bios you're sending out to press where you really get to sort of set the tone as how you tell the story about an artist, uh, they avoid completely saying where they're from. And sometimes that works in an artist's favor, sometimes it doesn't. I think with, with an artist like Courtney, who you, is a songwriter who, who deals in real honesty and sort of exposing her innermost thoughts and fears in, within her lyrics, that not being quite honest about where we're from would be disingenuous and sort of against the whole thing. Plus the fact that she, she has her own record label and, and is sort of in the midst of this scene here, which we're all quite proud of. And, and she really feels if she makes a bit of a noise about that, then she gets to pull along the people in her community as well. So does, let me ask you a question just sure. because I actually have absolutely no idea about the answer of this. So you're, you're in Australia yeah. and you have an artist like Courtney Barnett. Yeah. Do you, is your first thought to go to the UK? No, not not really. <laughs> I mean, the, the first thought is the USA or the UK, and I think they're basically even. Okay. In our experience with Courtney, the USA is a bigger market and probably worth more time. You know, if we, if we have to decide where we're going to tour or where we're going to dedicate more time touring, we probably pick the USA over the UK and or Europe just because it, it's always been just a couple of steps ahead. But... Yeah, I mean, it's those two. I, I know a very few artists that pick Germany or France. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so like, it, of it's course. One, it's, <laughs> it's, one of, it's one or the other. And, and often, I mean, it's such a global, like, it, the markets are, are pretty interconnected. If you're doing well in the USA, it tends to give you a foothold in the UK. I'm not sure if it works so much the other way. But that's what we've observed. Right. I mean, I was just talking to Anna Bond from Rough Trade, okay. and we were talking about how there are certain UK bands that really don't translate yep. to the US market. And that's like those lad bands. Yep. You know, the sort of anthemic British, you know, practically footballer lad bands. Like America doesn't get that at all. Yeah. yeah. So that stuff has never worked here. But that's not, I don't know if there's, I have no idea. Does Australia have bands like that? Or do those bands do well in Australia? <laughs> I mean, personally speaking, you know, uh, I can take them a leaving, but English lad bands do very well in Australia. They okay. certainly do. <laughs> but I think it's a lot to do with the, the biggest difference between any given market or the most prominent and obvious one that affects the way an artist, you know, is received is the media landscape. That's the one thing that I've noticed most is depending on the sort of radio station infrastructure in various countries really depends what audiences you reach and what types, what little niches and sub-genres sub might take hold. Mm -hmm. Right. So that kind of, that sort of gritty uh, songwriting thing that Courtney does, if you're early career, there's like a wonderful infrastructure in the USA to take advantage of that across the kind of AAA and NPR-affiliated stations. And that's sort of, I mean, there's nothing like that in Australia. So, you know, that's why the USA kind of felt like a potential home. And in the UK, you have your sort of BBC stations, some of which, you know, love that kind of anthemic lad band thing mm -hmm. and, and reach many people. But, I, you know, I can't think maybe that there's just not the sort of radio taste in the USA to make that work. Right. And radio in the USA is just such a, you know, closed market anyway. It's pretty much, you know, only open to the majors and then very, very selected indies who have money and, yeah. you know, very specific songs. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. It is, and it still confuses me. <laughs> like one thing we, <laughs> we we don't sort of pretend to know everything, that, you know, about, about the US. We, it's like we're always, always learning. And, and one thing that Courtney's also been really lucky with is that through the first people, this publicist and agent we started working with very early has sort of become part of our inner sanctum and making decisions about Courtney's career uh -huh. and having people on the ground that, you know, for example, a, a really good booking agent should have a, a good understanding of what small college radio stations exist in each town. 
for example, right? because they understand. And the, the concept that those two might cross over in Australia is completely fine. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. <laughs> wow. And then when all of a sudden our a- agents talking to us about, you know, we should play Kansas City because of the radio coverage you get there. It was like, what? Like, that's the thing that we, we would <laughs> route around. And so you learn those lessons really quickly. And having a few people that we, we really trust early on has helped Courtney a lot. Yeah. It's so interesting how different markets just are totally different in terms of the options that are available and how you have no chance. I mean, I'm thinking like I have never tried to market a band in Australia. I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, I think I know that you have one radio station called Triple J and that's it. That's all I know. That's <laughs> the entire, my entire knowledge of Australian radio. That's kind of right. Like certainly for like, you know, a Kill, Kill Rockstar's roster, that's, that's sort of all that's available to you. But even that is getting more and more commercial, uh, you know, in its taste. It's hard. We can talk about that in another podcast if you want. Yeah, totally. I'm fascinated. Australian radio market. Do you guys have like, is it is it like BBC? Is it like an, a national radio station? Do you guys have anything like that? Yeah. So we have Triple J, which I guess is the youth-oriented radio market. And, you know, at, when you grow up as a kid in Australia and you like music, that's almost, all, you know, everyone turns to that station. So it's, it's very influential for, for bands that might appeal to 15 to 25 year olds. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, good labels in my, you know, the, the labels that I like and the music that I listen to, it, it appeals to audiences older than that, really. So it, there's not options for, for artists that, I, that might appeal to say a 25 to 40 year old or 25 to 80 year old. Hmm. And so that's when things become hard because you don't have access to that. And then just the, just the population can't sustain the kind of enough interest to grow bands outside that, that radio station. So yes, that is the very short summation. I mean, there's a lot of, not more subtleties to it than that, but that's the sort of explanation of how things are in the Australian media landscape. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nick O'Byrne, we've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Thanks for having me, Porsche.
That was Dave's Babes by Wimps. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Nick Blasco is the director of the Rifflandia Festival in Victoria, B.C. Nick, welcome to The Future of What? Ah, The Future of What? Thank you for having me. So you are also a manager. Yeah. And you manage a band called Tegan and Sarah that a lot of people have heard of and are familiar with. And what we wanted to talk to you about that, particularly because we're interested, I mean, this being a show that's based in America, we're interested in knowing how people market bands to America from a different country. And obviously your, your barriers to entry are a little bit lower because Canada is an English speaking country and you're right next door. It's a little bit different. And we have, I think, a different view. You know, I mean, in America, I would say we have a pretty open view to bands from Canada and the UK, which we don't have towards bands like from France, say, or Germany, you know. But I think there's exceptions in all those realms. Because when you say France, I think, okay, well, Phoenix are, you know, kicking ass. And you look at groups like, Milky Chance coming out of Germany or even Lucas Graham out of Denmark. You've got, I think more so right now, you've got more foreign bands on the charts than I think think ever, especially in the EDM realm, you know, it's pretty exciting. They're not, they're not singing in foreign languages. So that's the, that makes uh, a big deal. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And and Canada is very much the same in, in our, in the bands that we sort of accept onto our charts. So, or that, you know, make it, make it onto the charts. So, so to your question, how do we market, how does a manager of a Canadian artist take that Canadian artist and market them in the U.S.? Right, exactly. So essentially we have kind of erased the border. So we don't really do anything differently, but I will say this, we work with great American marketing teams. So we don't, you know, claim to, you know, be able to run everything from up here and understand the nuances of the market. We do so very carefully. We have great, teams and we, we, we market them just like you'd market a regular artist for, for like the whole idea of being Canadian. We don't really use it ever as sort of a sales feature and certainly, or even part of the story for that matter. I mean, it's sort of, it's definitely there and it's, but it's not like we're hiding from it, but just to get back to my point, it's almost like we've just sort of, when we think about marketing the group, we just talk about what are we doing in North America and that includes Canada. Mm. We stay on the same message and, 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 and everything, but because I really don't think the audiences are are much different. When you started working with Tegan and Sarah, were they did they already have a profile in Canada, or were they sort of starting out the same in every territory? Certainly, there was a profile in Canada, and there was also a healthy groundswell on a profile in the U.S. So I think they were sort of on equal footing. Okay, you know, it was a very early decision with them to you know, consciously focus on the U.S. market. And not that we would ignore Canada, but we would really focus on developing city by city, you know, market by market in the U.S. the same as we would in Canada. You know, you've got 12 major markets in Canada, if that. So it's a limited market up here and you really have to, I think, to, you know, create a lasting career, you've, you've got to look at the U.S. So we put a, we've just always put a lot of energy into it. And I can't say the same for a lot of other Canadian managers. There's certainly a lot of great Canadian managers that have done so, but there's also a lot that that just by choice choose to focus on Canada. And that can work as well, but it's just, it's not something that we set out to do. Gotcha. Were they on a Canadian record label first or were they on a U.S. record label first? No, signed to, originally signed to Vapor Records, which was, you know, obviously owned by a, a Canadian conjunction with his manager who was American, but it was based out of Santa Monica at the time. Gotcha. So you had sort of a, a dual hybrid to begin yeah. with then. Exactly. Exactly. There was an American record company and it's a, it's, it's a hot sort of button topic or, or, or point in Canada in general for a lot of Canadian artists that sign to, especially Canadian major labels, they have to make a decision whether they want to tie up their international rights through these Canadian branch offices. Whereas most you know, large, most Canadian artists that have sort of achieved any success in the U.S. have have more often than not signed a U.S.-based record deal. Right. That's what I figured was was sort of the general 
trajectory, but probably mainly because, I mean, you say there are Canadian majors, but that's like branches of U.S. majors. Is that the same? I mean, it's exactly. like Sony, Canada. Yeah. Or... <laughs> we have the exact same majors up here. <laughs> right. so it's, uh, and, you know, they do good work and they, they do sign artists and they do break some artists domestically, but there isn't a great track record of those offices being able to break artists um, internationally. Interesting. So, and it's a big point when a, when a Canadian artist is, you know, approached or offered a record deal, certainly as a manager, it's my first, you know, concern really is what are the provisions for your international career? Can you hold back the other territories and can you, you know, how do you, how do you sort of mitigate the, the downside, I guess, or of that of the whole arrangement? Absolutely. Well, Nick Blasco, it's been a joy to talk to you. Nick Blasco is the director and founder of the Rifflandia Festival in Victoria, BC, and also team member of Amelia Entertainment. Nick, thank Amelia you. Amelia Artists. Amelia Very Artists. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Where's my mind twisting up, leaving thoughts behind? Gone for I go. The dirtiest justified merely by the need to sell them laying down alone. You don't speak away for long. Lovers rain asleep. They are bound to the throne. Yet on a day. Horse feathers. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard gossip, wimps, horse feathers, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. 
Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Your eyes.